Great musicians create dissonance. Great artists create dissonance. Great writers create dissonance. And John is a great writer. And with this story and with this character, he has created dissonance. You probably started to feel it. You'll feel it more by the time we get done. Something feels off. It's subtle. It's like you're looking at a painting. And everything seems like it should be like happy. But the colors that the painter has used make me feel sad. What's the artist doing? Creating dissonance. D.A. Carson says that John's portrait paints this man in doubt this man this invalid in dour tones what's john's point now before we get going let me set the scene jesus is now in jerusalem he's at the time of a jewish feast we don't know which one we just know he's there at a jewish feast and he is there at the sheep's gate sheep gate and he's at the pool of bethesda the pool of Bethesda was legendary because there, it was known to be a place where there were healing powers in the water. Archaeologists have identified this pool. It was a pool of healing waters. Bethesda. When I was in the military, one of the best hospitals in the Air Force was in Bethesda. It was called Bethesda. When I broke my nose in the Air Force... I showed up at the hospital on base. They looked at it and said, oh, no, we, we, we're not going to be able to help you with that nose. you got to go to Bethesda. Bethesda was the place where they healed people. It's named after this place. What we should know is that we're dealing with history here. This is a real place. This stuff really happened. But what we should also see is that there's some challenges with the manuscript evidence on this passage. Notice something. In your Bible, go to verse 3. It says, In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And then look, one man. What verse is noted right there in your Bible? It should say verse 5 if you're looking at the NIV or the ESV. Where is verse 4? Did they make a mistake? No. What they recognize, the scholars recognize that there's little manuscript evidence for what was verse 4. So it's been removed. What is, what is happening here, and I don't want you to, to distrust your Bibles. There's huge manuscript evidence for every word we have recorded here inspired by the Holy Spirit. But it's believed that this pool was actually fed by two natural springs that had a lot of mineral water in them. And occasionally when the springs would gush into that pool, it created a disturbance. And the pool had like these spa-like healing properties. Just imagine how much you could get if you could market this water. 
You start bottling this stuff. This is from the pool of Bethesda. You wipe this on yourself, you'll get clear complexion. You'll be on TikTok, you know, rubbing the water on and looking good. It also had a popular explanation attached to it that an angel occasionally showed up at the pool of Bethesda and stirred the waters. And the first person in was healed. Five roofs built, five roofs built next to this pool. So that the multitudes of blind, lame, and paralyzed had a place to lay so that they wouldn't burn in the sun. Five roofs because a lot of blind, lame, and paralyzed. We see it right here. A multitude of invalids are laying here. Now I want you to try to picture this situation. It's an uncomfortable picture. It's a pathetic sight. Hundreds of blind, paralyzed, lame people laying there. What does it sound like? What does it look like? What does it smell like? You feeling it? The blind are there. They're, they're probably trying to get someone to place them as close to the pool as they can. So if something happens, they can fall over the edge and into the water. The withered and lame are there. Their only hope of healing is to hope that they can climb over the bodies of the rest of the people, hopefully stronger than the next guy, so that they can get in there first. This is a pitiful crowd of broken humans. But here comes Jesus. Here comes Jesus by himself. No disciples were told with him. And Jesus stands at a place where he can look over the crowd. And one man, it says he knew, it says when Jesus saw him lying there and knew, how did he know? He either knew supernaturally or he did a little research. How long's that guy been laying over there? Is he, that guy looks worse than the rest. How long has he been here? He's been here 38 years. We don't, we don't know if God just gave it to him or whether he knew because he did a little research. But this guy was in a particularly poor state because he'd been there for 38 years. There's probably more than half of this room is not even 38 years old. 38 years. His need was long standing. 
That's an understatement, isn't it? The picture is a sobering one. But his life is going to take a drastic turn in just a minute. But I want you to see cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance, example number one. Jesus asks a dude who has been paralyzed and lying at the pool of Bethesda, dependent, totally dependent upon people, family, friends, who has have this, had this horrible existence. Jesus asks him a curious question. Do you want to be healed? You all think, what? Yes. Of course I want to be healed. Why would you ask me such a ridiculous question here at the pool of Bethesda? Now I want you to look at how he answers Jesus. Because he doesn't answer the way you thought he would answer. He doesn't answer with a yes. He answers with some kind of excuse or some kind of explanation. Sarah, I don't have anyone to put me in the pool when the water's stirred up while I'm going another steps down before me. Answer the question. That's cognitive dissonance. You see it? Cognitive dissonance number two. When he's healed, the authorities come to him and say, Yeah, what are you doing? Picking up your blanket and walking. That ain't allowed on the Sabbath. What does he do? He tries to avoid difficulty with the authorities by not rejoicing in this person that has made him walk, by avoiding the difficulty, by blaming it on somebody else. Whoever the dude was that made me walk, go talk to him. I don't know what happened. He told me to get up and walk, I did. Your problem's with him, not with me. Cognitive dissonance number two. Cognitive dissonance number three. Who did this to you? He don't even know. This dude is so dull that he didn't even know it was Jesus that healed him. He doesn't even know who it is so he could write him a thank you note. Let me get your name and number. I'd like to catch up with you later. After all, I was... Lame for 38 years and now I'm walking. Cognitive dissonance, you see it? Cognitive dissonance number four. Once he does find out it's Jesus and he knows that the Jews are in opposition to him, right there at the end in verse 15, he goes and tells the Jews that Jesus is in trouble with. Hey, I found him. He should have been going and finding, saying thanks to Jesus. Instead, he's getting him in trouble. What gives with this dude? This dude's getting on my nerves. It's cognitive dissonance. John is doing this on purpose. This guy is, he's a painful character to endure. He is the total opposite. I just want you to see something. I want you to see something. Flip ahead to John chapter 9, because this I, I just you gotta see this. What you're gonna see here is a person that gets a healing that's the complete opposite of this guy. I'm not gonna read it to you. I want to, but I'm not gonna read you the whole passage. We will read it soon. 
But this guy experiences a, a healing. He, Jesus gets mud, spits on it. You probably know this story. Puts the mud on this blind man's eyes and he washes and his, see, his sight comes back. So people come to him and say, yo, what's going on? He answered. They asked him, how are your eyes open? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud, anointed in my eyes, and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and I received my sight. They said, where is he? So, the, so they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. It was on a Sabbath. You're not allowed to give the guy sight on a Sabbath. It's a Sabbath, so they're, they're upset about this. So they said, this man who healed you, he's not from God. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. So they said to the blind man, who opened your eyes? What do you say about him? He said, he's a prophet. The Jews didn't believe he had been blind, so they went and got his parents. Was this kid blind? Was this guy blind? Trying to verify it. Well, who did it then? They said, they do just like this other guy in John 5. Don't, don't, hey, we don't want no beef with you. We don't want no trouble. You go ask him. He's of age. Ask him who did it. So they go and find him. They called him back a second time. They say, give glory to God. We know that this man who healed you is a sinner. He said, this guy, I love this guy. He says, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know is I was blind and now I see. This guy's different, right? What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I told you already, but you wouldn't listen. Why? Do you want to hear the story again? Do you want to become his disciples too? This guy. (laughs) This guy is not afraid, man. They reviled him, saying, you're his disciples, but we're disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. And the man said, why, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They looked at him. You were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? Jesus heard that they cast him out, so Jesus found him. Jesus said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe him? Jesus said, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. This guy is in total contrast to the guy we just met. You see it? What's the point? Here's the point of the sermon. How not to respond to Jesus? How not to respond to Jesus? I want to finish the sermon. I want to apply it by asking some questions. Are we willing... To have Jesus do a completely transforming work in us. Are you willing to have Jesus do a completely transforming 
work in you. Nobody talked back at me. Nobody said, yeah, I would like that. Another way of asking it, do you want to be healed? You want to be healed? It's easier said than done. Because if we accept Jesus that God is putting forward as the light, the one true light of the world, the Savior of the world, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If we accept Jesus, if we believe his name, then the scripture says we get Jesus. We get life in his name, eternal life. We walk in newness of life. But what if there's something about my old life my old self that I actually like. Am I saying goodbye to all of that? Is that what healing means? Does it mean a newness of life? Well, then hold on a minute. Here we confront another category of problem, the man's long lingering need which reaches back across many, many, many years and may even cast an ominous shadow over the entire landscape of his life. See, this is where I start to get sympathetic with this guy because I've never had to live in his shoes. I haven't had to spend 38 years as an invalid lying at the pool of Bethesda Psychological analysis of this guy would undoubtedly find that being a lame beggar for the last 38 years has undoubtedly influenced and shaped who he is. Shapes how he thinks. In a basic sense, friends, we all suffer to some degree from the hurts, the errors, the experiences of yesterday but some people's experiences, in some of their experiences, the shadows of the past are particularly dark and particularly overwhelming. Like this man, there are people who lay in a state of emotional paralysis, spiritual paralysis, relationally paralyzed. So before we judge this man, let's remember the state in which Jesus finds him. So Jesus' question is a penetrating one. His question is a penetrating one when he says to him, do you want to get well? Research shows that an eastern beggar often loses a good living by being cured. He's looking out over there at all them people that are working really hard. Under the sun, burdens. I don't know. I guess things could be worse. Cure has implications. 
Healing has implications, especially when the need is so long-standing that a whole way of life has been built up. Jesus heals you, and your life is going to be totally and completely and utterly transformed. Praise God, but recognize that there's going to be a transformation that takes place. So Jesus' question needs to be faced by all who would be delivered. Would you be delivered? Are you ready for the implication of being healed? What if it includes repenting of sin? What if it includes turning away from something that up to this point you have enjoyed? But you know that to follow Jesus means to set it aside. That's what repentance is. It's turning away from an old way of life and turning and saying, Jesus, I love you so much in light of what you have done for me. Now I want to live my life for you. That's a total change. It's a 180. What if being healed includes a whole new loyalty and a whole new love for Jesus? Jesus is loving we see it over and over in this gospel, but he is an aggressively requiring Lord. Not because he's trying to get you to do something to earn. I'm not saying that. Did you hear me say that? You might have heard me say that. Because you, we all tend to be so legalistic. Jesus requires our response. If you're not a Christian... I am responsible this morning to pass a question on to you. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be truly forgiven? Do you want to be made new? Because if you want to, you can be right here, right now. You just need to turn to Jesus. You just need to believe in Jesus. If you remain unconverted, if you remain unbelieving, if you remain a non-Christian, even though you have knowledge of Christ in your life, it's because you choose to be lame. You really don't want to be healed. You haven't said yes to Jesus. Now, how about those that are already Christians? How about a lot of you? I know a lot of you to be Christians. I'm looking out at you. There's a question we need to keep asking ourselves. Do you want to be healed? Do you really know your own heart? And do you want that heart healed? Because the longer that you walk with Jesus, the more you discover about your heart. You actually see things down in there that are kind of dirty. And kind of filthy. Do you want to be healed of those things? Bitterness. Secret sins. Unresolved conflicts. We just go on living. Trying to follow Jesus. But not dealing with these things. Not experiencing healing from these things. And, and we layer over them. We just kind of pile on top of them. We kind of suppress them, pile on top. We get these hard and calloused hearts, but it begins to take their toll. And the result is that we don't feel God's power in our lives and we don't experience his joy. We read the Bible and we pray, but nothing really happens. And I don't feel very joyful and I don't feel very powerful. 
question. Do you really want to be healed? Do you really want these things resolved? I believe with all my heart that if we do and we take time to ask God to do a work in us, that's a prayer he cannot not answer. That's a double-double negative or something like that. But you get the sense. Jesus would love to answer that prayer. Do you really want to pray it? Do you really want to be healed? So that was the first question we're asking. We're, we're talking about how not to respond to Jesus. And we're asking a question about our willingness. Do we really want him to come in and do a total transformation in our lives? Second question, are we willing to let grace do its work? Now it's similar to the first one, undoubtedly. To Jesus' question, this man responds in essence with a complaint. He is asked, do you want to be healed? And then he complains that I don't have anybody to get me into the pool. There's a lot of talk we could have there. Why doesn't he have any friends? People speculate when Jesus says at the end, hey, friend, you're, you're well. Don't go and sin anymore. There's some, there's some teaching we could do, and I'm not going to do it today, on whether sins result in physiological ailment. And the Bible would say, not in all cases, but certainly in some. But this guy says he complains. What is he doing? He's still locked up inside his own need, and he's thinking of a cure that comes through popular methods. Got to get down into the superstitious water. People today are no different than this. We constantly put our hope and trust in superstitious things. We don't want to trust Jesus. We want to trust the popular method of the day. I'll get out of this jam through this or this or this. But this idea of Jesus doing his grace work in my life, I'm not sure about that. It's a realization that healing can't be done by himself. He recognized, I can't get healed because I need someone else. So he's right in that. He can't be healed because he needs the action, the activity of someone besides himself. Spiritual paralysis is not as easy to see as physical paralysis. But there are many among us who are spiritually paralyzed. Just don't see it. Although we want to be healed we feel like there must be something we can do for ourselves. We want to fix ourselves. Look what Jesus does. Through all of this wrestling that's going on, the grace of God breaks through this man before he even gives him a chance to say, yes, I want to be healed. What does Jesus do? And I, I did it intentionally when I read because I think it would have shout, sounded like this. Get up! Away with all of your excuses. Away with everything that you're thinking about. I'm here now, and I'm going to tell you, get up, pick up your bed, and walk. Get up! The powerful voice of the Son of God, when he tells you to get up, you get up. He said that to some of you. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, and God said, wake up. 
and now you're alive. Why? Because of what you did? Absolutely not, because he's rich in mercy. Amen? The get up that he says, I just want you to see this. In verse 28, you're going to see it. He's talking about eschatology. He's talking about the end times. He's talking about how the dead will rise to light. He says, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Get up! And they're going to come out. Because it's the Son of God. Thirty-eight years proved the gravity of the disease, so the carrying of the bed and the walking proved the completeness of the cure. Get up. And he gets up. What's more powerful, long-standing sin, the paralysis that that creates, and need of a Savior, or the Savior's words, get up? I'll leave that to you. It's not a trick question. The voice of God and its power to rescue. Third question, are we willing to witness to Jesus? Are we a willing witness to Jesus? This dude gets in trouble with the religious for breaking a Sabbath law. They added all kinds of laws. We're going to get into this because we're going to see this opposition to Jesus for many chapters. But added, they added all kinds of laws to, their, to the laws of God. And they came up with this idea that one of the laws you couldn't do was carry your bed on the Sabbath. What it was supposed to get at was that you wouldn't work on the seventh day doing the job that you normally did for six other days. If this guy had been a furniture mover... It might have applied. Two guys and a camel. They asked him, who did this? Basically, he responds, hey, you no beef with me. Wasn't my idea. Somebody came along, told me to get up and walk. What was I supposed to do? I only did what he told me. If you have a problem with that, go talk to him. You ever remember something like that in your Bible? It wasn't me. It wasn't me. I, why should I be to blame? Remember the Garden of Eden? Why'd you do that, Adam? It was that woman you gave me. She gave me the fruit. You should go talk to her. Because I was just doing, you know, she handed it to me. I just ate it. Blame shifting. Instead of rejoicing and defending the glory of Jesus as that other guy did in chapter 9, as the person who had healed and delivered him, he turns on Jesus. He passes the buck. This dude needs to hear Luke 12. He needs to hear this one. Whoever confesses me before man, him the Son of Man also will confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Tell a joke here, Kenny. Make us laugh. That one made me feel uncomfortable. It's supposed to make you feel uncomfortable. Are we willing witnesses to Jesus? Alexander Great, great story about him, engaged in a serious battle. One of the soldiers fled. 
They were in the heat of battle, and he took off. He was a coward. After the battle, he was caught and brought to the tent of Alexander the Great. He stood trembling before the general who asked him, Why'd you run? Why'd you run? I was afraid. I see. What's your name? Hmm. He mumbled. Speak up. What's your name? My name is Alexander. To which Alexander the Great responds. Either change your behavior or change your name. Are we going to be willing to stand for Jesus, church? That question has never been in my lifetime more of a challenge than it is right here, right now, and it's going to get harder. Are we willing to be a willing witness for Jesus? Are we willing to stand for Jesus in a culture that is falling apart at the seams? Are we willing to stand for Jesus? We need to ask ourselves a question. We need to either change our behavior or change the name Christian. This book tells us how Christians are supposed to live. You willing to do that? If you're not, then you got some soul work to do. Last, and this is a quick one. Are we filled with gratitude and joy? Look at what this guy does when he discovers it was Jesus. What a marked contrast from the others. You would think he'd take off like everybody else and want to express gratitude to Jesus. But he doesn't. He actually takes off to go, hey, I found out who you were looking for. His name is Jesus. Whether this guy regained, retained any gratitude to Jesus is impossible to tell from this story. But he does waste no time in getting Jesus into more trouble. The guy doesn't appear in a good light, either before the healing or after it. This church is a timely reminder that a miracle or a physical healing is itself no guarantee of a changed heart. That's what Jesus taught us last week. That a miracle doesn't sustain. Only life in Jesus' name sustains. You need Jesus, not a miracle. Will you get miracles? Will you see utterly astounding things? Will you be utterly joyful and amazed if you follow Jesus? Yes, you will. But being freed from our affliction might not lead to a godlier life. It's further indication, church, that all of God's gifts are grace gifts. They have been shared with a multitude who don't deserve them. You and me are just like, you should see this. We got a lot that, that we share similarities with this guy. This man did nothing to earn his cure. I ask, what did you do? 
God doesn't require that you do anything to earn the cure. God gives the supreme gift of eternal life to those who can't earn it. Aren't you thankful, church? That's the glory of the gift that should fill our hearts with constant daily gratitude to Jesus. I don't care if you've been a Christian for an hour, a day, a month, or years. Our hearts should be filled with gratitude when we think of the grace that he has shown to us. The glory of the gift is that it's for people who couldn't earn it. It's for sinners, not for saints. It's for the sick, not for the well. It's for all of us. It's for me. It's for you. Let us learn from this man how not to respond to Jesus. How not to receive the blessings of Christ. Let us see ourselves in this man and let us cast ourselves upon the loving mercy and patience of Jesus. Amen? Amen.